Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Oge Chibo. And I'm Ian Bukta. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Before we jump into this episode, I just want to call out last week's episode if you haven't had a chance to listen to it. Oge put together a conversation about how race affects health, identity, and academia, and I just can't recommend that conversation enough. So if you can, please give that episode a listen as well as this one. All right, let's get into this week. Okay, what are we talking about? So thank you, Robin, so much for coming on to the podcast this week. Can you state your name and what you do? Sure. My name is Robin Espinosa. Uh, I am a PhD candidate in the Occupational Environmental Health uh, Department at the College of Public Health, but I'm specifically in the Occupational Injury Prevention Program. So before we get into your research itself, can you just give us a brief background on what childhood trauma is? Sure. Uh, So trauma means different things to different people. Um, If you say trauma to a physician, of course, that's going to mean something that has caused pain, injury, something like that. To me, when I say trauma, I'm specifically talking about interpersonal childhood trauma. Um, So what this is, is... So the best way to think of it is, um, is trauma of something being done to a child. So this could include abuse or like witnessing violence, which could be in or outside of the home. Uh, and also trauma includes the lack of something. So when we're uh, neglected, either emotionally or physically, this also is a trauma for children. Um, lastly, I think trauma also includes that environment outside the home. On top of violence, if we're witnessing poverty or uh, lack of access or the fact that things are more more difficult for us than our counterparts or something like that, that can be perceived as trauma to children. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and kind of starting to think about your research. Why is trauma important when we consider repeat juvenile offenders? Uh, Yeah, good question. Um, So trauma is important for children, period, any of them. I think it's important um, for juveniles, just in addition, because if we think about children, up until 18, our brains are growing rapidly. This is the point where they're developing and we're learning how to, you know, respond to cues and be a human, really. Uh, So when these traumas occur during this developmental period, it can affect not only, you know, how we respond to things, um, but it also creates stable uh, and unhealthy attachments to people. So when we don't have those attachments in youth, it kind of changes how we interact with people as adults um, because we don't have those nurturers. But it can also um, increase stress responses when we're older. So this continual stress um, that we experience, uh, we may experience as youth, uh, it damages the neural pathways and those connections in our brain uh, leading to functional changes. So this, these functional changes can include like our uh, having issues with decision-making or uh, self-regulating, fear processing, and then even stress management in general. Um, And this is just naming a few things on a very long list. Specifically, we think of fight or flight response. When we're in youth and we're constantly escalated and stressed and we're constantly in this fight or flight mode, kind of gets burnt out. Um, As adults, we know 
our hearts race and, and we feel tense, you know, your, your pupil dilation changes, all of these things happen. Um, and this continuous and repeated activation in childhood, you know, we, we burn out from it. Um, and then it kind of leads us to have issues with internally regulating adrenaline and cortisone, cortisol, I mean, um, in our bodies. So when you have cortisol issues in general, you get high blood pressure, inflammation, uh, issues with glucose, high glucose problems, even bone density issues uh, amongst a long list of anxiety and depression and all these other problems. So when we have youth faced with these impulsive decisions um, and these fight or flight response is faulty, um, you know, they might not understand the consequences of these decisions or think ahead like we're kind of trained to do as we're developing. Um, and these biological differences cause us to, you know, respond differently. So are all children going to respond the same way? No. Um, and, and now we have proof from multiple studies that there's this functional change in the brain, which means that we need to address these issues in youth um, so that not only can we learn how to better, you know, address these kids when they're having issues, but we also teach them to how to self-regulate and deal with these issues and deal with these traumas and stressors as they grow up um, so they can better regulate because these kids don't settle back down as easy as, you know, those children with no traumas. Yeah. And as you, as you talk about that, especially with the biological changes, you know, it makes me think, you know, as a public health person, you know, primary and secondary prevention, you know, you have to both to help the people who have already had these brain changes because of the constant um, childhood or because of the childhood trauma and constant firing of that fire flight. But then, you know, it was important that you're talking about that. But then also I look, it's interesting to hear you talk about how we need to address the things at the root as well in that primary prevention. Definitely. Um, I think, you know, as a public health uh, professional, you can attest to, I think all of our brains initially go to primary prevention. Like, yeah, of course, secondary prevention comes. Definitely. We always have to address those things, but if we stop it at the root, so it doesn't grow any further, then I think that's the best course of action because you don't have to deal with it later. One it's it's cheaper for the system in general, but two, it's easier because the problem hasn't grown so huge to the point that it's out of control uh, if we kind of nip it in the bud, so to say. Yeah, yeah. and But I also like how you're talking about secondary because we can't forget about the people who have already been, you know, already had the, the trauma happen. Um, if you don't mind me kind of jumping over to talking about some of those root causes, social determinants of health have been on our minds a lot uh, over the course of this podcast. And I know at, on everyone's mind right now, especially when we start talking about criminal justice, um, we start thinking about race, especially with current topics that everyone is very conscious of right now. Um, how do social determinants of health like race and socioeconomic status affect the outcomes that you study? Intersectionality. I think that's like the big thing that jumps out here. So that intersection between the social determinants of health and, um, you know, the adversity we experience in childhood. So those different kinds of traumas, both those individual traumas, uh, you know, also referred to as ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, as well as the community traumas. Um, and, and these are also called, they're adverse community experiences. So it's this pair of ACEs uh, that were dealt. So when we 
bring in that second ace of community trauma, that intersectionality is extremely clear. So like I mentioned before, you know, you have these effects from having that higher cortisol of blood pressure issues and inflammation and glucose problems. Um, coupling those with the experience of, of, of external traumas on top of that, uh, it shows us that we need to address the fact that there are lower resources in some areas or, um, you know, decreased amounts of care or quality of care. Um, and, and then possibly the lower... Um, quality of the resources that are available. So we talk about food deserts, you know, how does this affect them? One, health-wise, because they don't have access to good things. But two, um, you know, is this a trauma to experience the lack of having food available to you or having to travel so far and, and you know, not being able to get as much because of the cost of things in different areas? Um, all of these kind of things add together. Intersectionality is kind of where I live at. Um, and I think also public health is where we live. Um, so my work is public health, but it's also criminal justice and sociology and all these different things that, that just kind of hit at the same point. Um, so I think that's really the, the root of the problem when I look at this trauma and especially in, in juveniles. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, you study that from the environmental uh, kind of context. How does that inform your research? Just thinking about it environmental. So when I first encountered ACEs, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, all this makes sense. You know, um, if you're abused by a parent, of course, this is going to affect me long term. But then I think about it, you know, um, what about everything else? You know, everything isn't your parents. Your formative years are spent not only in your home, but if we think about the time that children are away in school, those relationships with instructors and peers, all of this also forms who we are and experiences we have. So if you're in a school that's ranked a one out of 10, I'm sure your experiences are going to be very different than if the school was a nine out of 10 um, or a 10 out of 10 these experiences are all a part of that environment that we live in. The walk to school. Are you getting on a bus? Do you have to take a city bus? You know, what's the routes going through that? Um, so I'm from Chicago and they have um, like guardian angels who stand out on certain bus routes or outside of certain schools um, and help usher these kids home. These are volunteers who are out there ushering kids home just so they're safe because the neighborhoods aren't great. This is something that is going to fundamentally change and, you know, kind of uh, stick with them throughout life. I, I've shared with uh, some people in Iowa who've had, um, you know, debates about whether or not to have resource officers in the schools. Um, I mean, that's something that I'm used to. I went to middle school, high school, and there were officers there. I got my bag searched through metal detectors. I went through metal detectors. I even remember the, the drug sniffing dogs coming in and smelling our things. You know, so these are all things that I grew up with that are, you know, that stuck with me. And I know for a fact that bad things still happen, even with these controlled and, and you know, elevated measures. Um, so that was the environment that I brought to the, the table. Not only, you know, thinking of those things, we can also add in another layer to it that I just haven't figured out how to measure in this group of kids, but, you know, exposure to environmental hazards. You know, are they living close to highways? 
because we, we've seen, you know, through GIS, we can map out where these impoverished neighborhoods are. We've had issues with it, especially in Chicago, with neighborhoods um, and the housing projects being built on, you know, areas that were historically where they dumped waste, you know, radioactive waste. This is a hazard. This is something that is going to biologically, functionally change children, and they have to grow up with these issues. Um, so when I think environment, my brain just expands to all these different environments that we're putting in, and I think that they're all extremely important to, to think about, again, that intersectionality of all these points and how they're impacting these kids who probably can't completely articulate how they're feeling and the things that they're going through. But as adults, I think being reflective and adding all these things in is, is how we can address these problems. I, I love how you kind of built the whole picture of what we think about environment, like the environment is in public health. And I should have probably couched this before asking the question, but you know, in public health, when we're thinking about in the environment, we don't just mean, of course, like ecologically, we're thinking about the environment that a, that a human is experiencing around themselves. Right. Yeah. So if you don't mind me kind of backing up a bit, can you talk a little bit about how your research is done? Like what does data collection look like for you? Yeah, so um, also believe in multi-methods. I think uh, we can't always just rely on one, one vantage point to get all the information. So I am using a couple different methods. So I'm using secondary data in survey form that comes from the juvenile system. And from that data, I'm going to extract the individual ACEs. And additionally, from that data, I can uh, kind of look at where the juveniles resided when they were taken in and kind of look at what communities they lived in. Um, you can access information about poverty in that community. Um, and, you know, if there's violence, I can get violence index in the community. The FBI has information for the entire nation about this. Um, and, and many of the um, police individual jurisdictions um, lend to this information. So it's pretty uh, thorough. Um, additionally, we've also seen through the research that uh, having racial, ethnic heterogeneity is another um, factor that can uh, lead to, to traumas and, and changes, especially when shifting from one area to another and things change. So the secondary data is, is giving me all these different images. Additionally, I, I always wanna have a human aspect of talking to people because I know that paper and uh, reports isn't gonna give me all the information that's available. Um, so uh, a big thing I think that most people have heard of is, is the school to prison pipeline. So I'm going to um, kind of get information from all those key stakeholders within that pipeline um, from uh, parents who have dealt with uh, children who have gone through the system and those who have not, um, all the way through to um, like corrections officers for both the juvenile, possibly adult level, teachers, principals, if there's like a dean of students who deals with disciplinary actions, um, just trying to see how all these people lend their resources to these problems to see how they're, you know, addressing intervention, prevention, correction of any kind of problem behaviors, um, just to see there if there are any gaps in what's going on or people assuming that other people are doing roles that maybe there's better suited for them. Um, so yeah, those two kind of methods. In case any of our listeners haven't heard of the school to prison pipeline, do you mind just kind of talking a little bit about that for them? 
Sure. Um, so historically, we've seen issues if they start kind of in school um, and have repeated, especially behavioral problems, it can lead them to small issues, you know, small like childhood misbehaviors um, that can continue on. And when not corrected, once you turn 18, something that wasn't as serious before can be serious now um, and does lead these children to, um, to being adults and also making these mistakes and being um, imprisoned as, as, you know, adults. So it, it's been studied a lot of the times in minorities. So when we have issues in school, when we're over policed kind of in schools, we see these problems continue. Um, and having those disparities in the education system, especially when we're addressing problem behaviors, kind of leads to repeat offending um, throughout life and, and leads them to, you know, shorter misdemeanors to longer issues and, and having like felonies on their records and longer um, stays in the prison system. One thing, if you don't mind me kind of tugging at some threads we've been, we've been working with. Um, so I used to work as an educator before I came back to grad school. And one of the things that we would always talk about is when a child is acting out, there's usually a reason for it that's underlying. And so as I hear you talk about the school to prison pipeline and how like children who are acting out kind of continue to have worse and worse outcomes. It's interesting. And, you know, with your, with your research of childhood trauma, like that, those traumas often cause students to act out and then you have that kind of reinforcing pathway. Yeah. Educators probably are the first person that can tell you they see these issues. Um, and not only are they acting out, you probably see issues with attendance um, issues with staying focused during the entire class. You see issues with completing um, any kind of assignments outside the classroom. And where I think educators can step in is just, I mean, it really probably comes down to energy. You have, you know, 30-ish kids in your classroom and you have a couple acting out. Do you redirect all of your attention to just these kids or, you know, continue on or send these kids to, you know, a disciplinary in the building? Um, so having that energy to, to actually look into what that problem is. And like you said, there's probably something underlying there, some issues at home that cause these problems um, or some kind of stress that they have. If they live in an in, in impoverished neighborhood and, and they have gunshots all the time, are they able to sleep well at night? Um, or is this something that you know needs to, to be better addressed? Um, I think it's one of those things that we have to do um, as adults is just check in and being that, um, nurture outside of the parent, like that safe, stable bond that, that kids um, need um, to disrupt this pipeline. And that's really, I think, what it's all about. Um, so they have trauma-informed training for teachers, which is extremely important, like learning those de-escalation skills. Like I said before, when they have these issues and they're constantly in this fight or flight, when kids are, are agitated and start having these outbursts in class, it's physically harder for them to calm themselves down. Um, so having that mindset to know that, okay, I might just need to take an extra minute here, or this, you know, may need a little bit more of my attention at this moment, or there needs to be a person, a mental health professional there who's trained to deescalate these kids. A problem that's seen is that teachers are underpaid and clearly 30 is a huge number to have in a classroom. And when you can't do that, of course, you're going to put it off on somebody else. And that's when, you know, a resource officer or an untrained police officer comes in and, and doesn't know how to properly de-escalate 
an issue uh, with children. And then we see law enforcement brought in in a different way. So as you've conducted this research, has anything surprised you? Yeah, a um, couple things have surprised me. Uh, one, just doing my background research, um, trying to see if anything had been done um, by other um, academics. You know, um, I came across some research that showed that you know any contact with the justice system puts the kids in worse position than if they had uh, no contact. So that surprised me because I'm like, okay, it's supposed to be an intervention. Like if they're going to the juvenile system, they're supposed to be getting rehabilitated. They should have some kind of programming that helps them, you know, deal with behavioral issues. Um, but that's, that's not what the research showed. Any contact worse than having none. Um, so that was the first thing that shocked me. And it just showed me one that there's problems. And then I learned the term recidivism. Um, and this means like return to offending. So repeat offending pretty much. Um, and the numbers are high. Uh, in in Iowa, um, the the numbers can range from 23 to 46%, depending on the county. Um, so almost half the kids within a year return to some kind of offending behavior. Um, where the problem there is, is that um, there's a couple different ways they can come back. They can come back by actually recommitting a crime or by some technical offense. Um, so then that's another thing we have to look into is like, who's committing these technical offenses and their children. So how much can we expect from them? And I think another thing that kind of surprised me is that, you know, I think we, we hold kids to standards that they might be a little bit higher than, you know, what we expect. If you, if you look at laws, there's laws that are only crimes for children and not crimes for adults like, you know, alcohol. Um, that's one thing. There is even a law that if you appear to be intoxicated, not actually intoxicated, appear to be intoxicated in public, that's an infraction, you know. Um, and then we have the, the laws on campus with the kids, you know, they're over 18, but if they're in the bar past 10, you know, this is a law, but it's only for people under 21. So it's weird that we have these two different standards um, for people, you know, um, that, that we have to kind of look at. So I think it's, it's weird to punish um, children, especially when they're in inherently irresponsible. Uh, if I th think back about myself being a child and, you know, being hardheaded and being rebellious and, you know, forgetful and lazy, you know, all, all children have these kind of, um, you know, characteristics in them. Should I expect a kid to be on time for school every day when they're the person getting themselves there every day, when they have to be out to get catch, you know, a city bus at specific time? If, you know, they have a single parent who leaves before them, can I really penalize a kid for, for making these mistakes when it's kind of built against them to mess up? Um, so I think that's something that I also kind of want to look at, like, just who's committing these offenses, why um, is it really a problem, you know, with, with um, you know, j just how things are for, for this child that they're making, you know, mistakes and errors, and, and is it really their fault? Just changing directions one last time. Thank you, one, for sharing that, but, but also... Let, I, with the caveat that your research isn't quite done yet as you're, as you're finishing your dissertation, 
Um, let's say when you do finish it and you have your written report, and if you were able to hand the summary of that to a lawmaker and they implemented things based on your recommendations, what would the world look like? Like what would, what would change and how would that improve outcomes for your children in the long term? Um, there would be a lot more trauma-informed professionals. Um, I think that we can't count it out uh, of anybody's training. I think that a lot of times de-escalation can change a lot of things and police officers aren't trained for that. Um, they come in with a physical aggression de-escalation, not so much the emotional part. I think sometimes you know, the, the children are still processing things. So the biggest change I think I would see is just kind of this general reform in practices, um, some kind of standardization, a reevaluation of what programs are offered. You know, a lot of places now, um, you know, say that they're giving research informed programs or care or something like that. What's the research? Is it still valid today as it was five years ago? Is this something that you need to plan to, to make edits to on a regular basis? Because we know science is always evolving. Everything changes. Stuff that I might say today might be different, you know, in a year. Um, things evolve and change. And I think that we need to do that as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing about your research. We have two questions that we ask our guests on the way out uh, on the back half of this episode. And so... The first question is, what is one thing that you thought you knew, but later realized that you were wrong about? Um, I thought that the justice system was this singular entity that stood alone. Um, and then what I found out is, is it's a system. Everything is, is connected. Um, so the human services is connected to the juvenile court system. Um, and these both connect ACEs. If you're in contact with like, uh, the family services for some kind of, you know, issue of abuse or neglect, this is an ace. This changes this child and might lead them to act up, leads them to the court system. And then, of course, the juvenile court system is linked to the adult court system. If you don't reform them in juvenile ages, then, of course, they're going to reappear as adult. Um, and this feeds into unemployment. Um, and this feeds into, you know, economy issues. We don't have people working that could be working, or we have children living with traumas and they can't perform every job because they have triggers or they have issues regulating their emotions in certain, you know, uh, environments. Um, so just realizing the vastness of the system is the thing that I've learned um, throughout my research. Thank you so much. And then my last question for you today so what is something that has interested you recently outside the world of public health? Um, I think, again, just the intersection of everything. Uh, we're living in, in strange times. Um, we've started with a virus that went completely crazy um, within a week. You know, I think we left for spring break and then everything just changed. The world changed. Um, and then on top of that, we're having, again, you know, because I follow criminal justice, we're having issues with um, enforcement and de-escalation and handling people. Um, so the intersection of these things, and then on top of that, you know, people are social distancing and not being able to work. And I'm just, you know, kind of seeing how everything is connecting resources, lack of resources, the economy, 
you know, who's going back to work, who are those essential people. Um, and this connection between all of these things, I think, is, is one, fascinating and I think eye-opening for all of us. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Thanks for having me. Um, I really appreciate the questions and, you know, you finding those links and everything that I think swirl through my head. Maybe I don't always say the best. Yeah, well, thank you so much. So, okay, what did you think? Okay, so after listening to this last episode, uh, last episode, the thing that really went through my mind was I'm so grateful for this podcast because I really do get to learn like different things every single time I listen. And I really do love the focus on childhood trauma because like even right now, me and my friends is really something we've been talking about, like how your childhood implicitly, unconsciously, sometimes is really loud, like it's out there. And maybe like, I mean, with, really adverse situations like maybe physical abuse where you can actually see it but then again there's a lot of emotional or cognitive trauma that really stems from like childhood sometimes it's not really as huge as maybe even emotional abuse but there are a lot of like different ways that trauma presents itself and the way it affects people especially children and then as robin said it goes on into like being an adult and when you're now an adult, you're trialed, you're trialed as an adult for things that happened to you as a child, things you could not control that happened to you as a child. So I just think it's really interesting. It's definitely something we've, we always learn or talk about in public health. Then again, when we're talking about like social determinants of health, how your environment, the people you live in, all these things, you know, when you do like observational learning as a child, which is something we do a lot. All our personalities stem from the, those things, things we really did not pay conscious mind to, but then we were influenced and it made us who we are. So, but yeah. So, you, what did you think? So, go, kind of going off of that, uh, you, you talked about things that you can see like physical trauma. Mm-hmm. And I, lo- I really thought one of the most interesting parts about Robin's uh, ideas were the fact that we're at this point, this nexus where we can scan people's brains and, you know, see divergent, you know, development of brains. And so we actually can physically see trauma, um, you know, uh, that isn't just physical trauma um, using these brain scans. I mean, I'm sure it's not every single person, but like we can see how brains develop differently. And I think that that's just fascinating. And then, you know, as people have trauma and it causes them, as Rob and I were talking you know, that feedback loop that, you know, you butt up against discipline or the justice system and then it gives you more, you know, and then you can be re-traumatized and then that just keeps sending you further and further on a path. Um, and I think it's just fascinating some of the determinants that she got into um, as we talked about that. Determinants, you know, um, just the, the outside factors that mm-hmm. um, can impact an individual's life. Mm-hmm. You know, something, again, that I found really interesting was when she spoke about how these so-called rehabilitation centers really aren't. And I did, and I don't understand that. I've, I've had this, like, come up with all the things that have been happening recently about how, like, maybe, like, the justice system, prison system is supposed to give you re- rehabilitative care. That's just the point. But really, there are no services. So it's like, so then what is the point of secluding people if you don't give them the care that they need 
like to release them back into the society and so you just keep on having this whole repeat loop and cycle of continuous offenses that even becomes worse so yeah, yeah and, and i do think some amount of recidivism is probably just because of selection factors there are people who who for whatever reason aren't going to be able to be rehabilitated for you know a tiny 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 amount of the population i have no expertise here i'm just kind of spitballing um audience so whatever i'm saying you know take it with a grain of salt but you kind of do have that little bit of selection but the fact that the recidivism is so high is just as you're saying it seems and just as robin noted it seems like the system that we're using currently is not working to help yeah. children, especially those with trauma, avoid, you know, going back and contacting the justice system multiple times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I definitely think when she talked about giving the police enough um, training on how to actually de-escalate situations that doesn't have to do with like, you know, being aggressive. I think that is also really important because that's a lot of how most of crime actually in the, in the society happens it's because we don't understand and they don't understand so now it's like you're misinterpreting the situation and everything just escalates more than it actually needs to be in the first place and yeah i definitely think like a lot of people especially if you're working like professional even business owners ceos your employees people should have such because mental health is now a huge thing and i think it's always been a thing but people ignored it back then but now that we all know we are aware we might as well incorporate it in anything that we do any business especially if you're going to interact with the public even as public health <laughs> professionals we need that training and i know we talk about it a lot but then it's one thing to talk about it and one thing to actually conduct or you know yeah. And I think two things contribute to that. And one of them is the idea that we're living in probably the first time in a long time that we actually treat people with mental illness as though we're starting to treat it as though it's an illness. You know, we still have a long ways to go, but it's even like in 50 years, it's, it's come a long way. Uh, you know, a hundred years ago, we had a eugenics movement in this country where if you had mental illness, or genetic illnesses that people were trying to erase you. And so I think there was that taboo that prevented training. But when we think about prevented training, like you need to train people for the job. We wouldn't send a teacher into a classroom without a lesson plan mm -hmm. or time to develop one of their own. You know, I, you know, you and I wouldn't just sit down with no podcast script and try to, and try to just go for it. You know, you, you just can't be sending people into situations they're not prepared for because that's not fair to the people they're serving. And it's not fair to the people trying to do their job. And so just as you're saying, you know, we need to implement more trauma informed training for, you know, civil servants all through the levels. I think that's a really good point. And I know Robin made that point as well. Well, like, so I was looking at some philosophers and they were basically talking about how, what we call mental illness, like just the fact that we think it's an illness is part of the problem. So instead of changing these people that already deviate from the norm, because you know, as a society, we get really attacked or like triggered when something isn't normative. It's like, no, we've told you what you can do and you want to act like, you know, and everyone is like, so it's like, why not accept them? Because one time I took like abnormal psychology and it was a thing we we're always talking about. Instead of changing children, 
like you think, oh, they're not acting in the way that I think or society has said we should act, why not accept them and then act accordingly? That their lives may actually be better that way instead of trying to like change them or tell them that, oh, you are bad and you cannot, you know, you as a person, your personality is horrible. Well, yeah. Yeah, and I think some of that stems out of the fact that the United States has had a culture of conformity, especially when a lot of the people who are in power now were children. And so you you look at like the 1950s and you look at literature like The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, where business was literally, you know, it's a story about every single person being a man in a gray flannel suit. And that was what the landscape looked like in, in business, at least in popular culture. You know, obviously there are people who didn't look like that, who were still doing great work, but there was that kind of locking out of people who were different. And I think that the kind of the story of the last 50 to 70 years and much, much longer, you know, people have been fighting for a long time, but it's just allowing space for people who aren't white cisgendered men. Mm-hmm. Well, this conversation has gone quite a bit from where we started, <laughs> but I hope it was productive and I hope listeners that you all uh, got something out of it. Cause I did. Uh, okay. was teaching me some stuff in here too. So yeah yeah i think that's i think that's it for this episode though Mm -hmm. yes all right okay so yes all right so we're out of here you can find us on facebook at the university of iowa college of public health or on itunes and spotify as well as the university of iowa college of public health let us know what you thought about this episode and series at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu that's cph-g-r-a-d-a-m-b-a-s-o S-A-D-O-R at uiowa.edu. Audience, I hope you noticed this time I actually spelled it. Uh, I said it first, then spelled it. That's for you guys. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Oge Chibo and Ian Bukta. It was edited by Ian Bukta. Thank you to our guest, Robin Espinosa. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. See you next week. Happy social distancing. Stay safe. And remember to still have that uncomfortable conversation about racism.